welcome to the Temple of Blair, episode H. Uh, this is another entry into the History of Roadrunner Records series that we've got going on. Uh, this conversation is with Andy Saunders of Velocity Communications. Now, Andy's a, pretty much a veteran of the UK music industry. Uh, after he worked at Roadrunner from 89 to 92, he went on to be the Director of Communications at Creation Records, uh, the, those guys are responsible for quite a lot of the much larger Britpop acts of the mid-1990s. And then he'd go on to found Velocity Communications in the year 2000, which is where he's been ever since. But in this conversation, we talk about his time at Roadrunner, uh, some of the challenges he faced operating under Case Wessel's model, uh, as we've discussed before, low investment, high volume act. Uh, Andy, in particular, was heading up kind of the alternative arm of Roadrunner as they were expanding at that time. We've referred to that previously as Emergo Records. Uh, so Andy was running up the UK arm of that. And I'm extremely grateful for Andy uh, giving me his time. So I hope you all really enjoy this one. It's a really good insight as to how the Roadrunner office was run in the UK. One, two, fuck shit up. To make sure that you could hear me okay, so. That looks fancy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do a lot of podcasts, so, you know, I mean, it's a, we're all set up, so... Yeah, yeah. I've just got a, a 57, which up until a week ago had a pair of tights wrapped around the end as a, as a makeshift boom. Okay. Not, but not, now, stra- but... not strange or weird at all? <laughs> well, thanks for uh, for taking the time, man. I, I do appreciate it. Um, That's okay. Dragging but, myself away from the US elections. Oh, man, yeah. it's um, Yeah, I guess it's just waiting for markets to stabilise and watch the bookies and see what's going on. Because it's, yeah. it's difficult to make sense of any else, you know, any other part of it. Crazy. Yeah, man. So this uh, this project is effectively me trying to tell the story of Roadrunner Records in any in, in a more linear and sort of cohesive narrative because everything you get is usually liner notes and you know from CDs or greatest hit CDs and there's no real story being told. Um, so I've been plowing through personnel who are willing to talk to me and uh, and bands and things like that to try and get what their experiences are. Uh, and as I said to you over our email exchange, uh, Gary Levermore is the guy that put me in touch with yourself. Um, so I understand you were there from what the UK office opening up to '94, or no? I, I I mean, well, first of all, I I kind of brought Gary Levermore in. Um, I introduced him to Case Vessels with Third Mind. Um, I was there from eighty about eighty nine to early ninety two. Right. Okay. Is that? Oh, okay. So is that when the UK office was opened in '89? No, I've been been open for a while before then. I don't know for how long. Yeah, that's a blind spot for me. I know everyone makes a big deal about the US office opening with yeah Holly Lane and Steve Ricardo, who I spoke to yesterday. <clears throat> but there's no, there's nothing written down. Um, I know it's 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 hazy for me to be honest. Have you spoken to Mark Palmer? I've not. No. Um, I might work my way up there, but at the minute. He's the guy, really. Mark, Mark, Mark's the guy that kind of ran the U the UK office, founded the UK office, mm-hmm. was there till the bitter end. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he he's got an encyclopedic knowledge of what went on. He was across a lot more stuff than I was. Mm-hmm. You know, I came in. I, I didn't even come in to run the rock stuff. I came in mm-hmm. to run the alternative. I mean, we'll get onto this, I'm sure, but the alternative rock stuff mainly. So I wasn't even involved in a lot of that stuff. So mm-hmm. I don't know how much use I'm going to be of you. Who have you spoken to from the from the UK office? Um, just Gary at the minute, and uh, had a, I'm in the middle of an email conversation with Michelle Kerr. Okay, who was who? I think she joined in '95. 
actually so she was after me yeah correct yeah uh sophie and rudy might be people to talk to as well they were there they were contemporaries of mine around the same time sophie and rudy have you got any last names oh god i knew you were going to ask me that um I, I can easily find sophie's sophie's uh surname i'm sure it's changed now i'm sure she's married in the in the mm. you know in the time in that 30 year period uh, mark, details. mark mark palmer is definitely the person you want to speak to have you got yeah. his details I, I i think i can i've got contacts i can get in touch with to get in touch with mark but i think at this point i need to give myself some clout because if he just sees my name pop up he'll think i'm trying to give him a demo so yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah so it's, there's that as well and the monte connors of the world and things like that there's um well, Monty's it's, it's, crazy anyway, isn't he? So you know. Yeah, I think if the problem with it, the problem with it is if I was to approach these guys sort of out of the blue, and they were I'm sure they are accommodating. But if I got to sit, sit down with them for an hour, the project itself could die of entropy because these guys know so much. Yeah. Whereas if if I'm exploring the story organically with the people that were involved, it paints the picture a little bit better, and there's not like a an information overload, if that makes sense. So I'm kind of okay. holding out on those guys for the time being. Okay. Um, and those guys, at times, obviously, it's 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 they're very very busy people trying to <laughs> shape nuclear blast and uh, compete with all the, the the wider world, especially these days. So how did you end up at Roadrunner? So I was working. Huh, I was working for a classical music company bizarrely right. uh called conifer records which was run by alison wenham who went on to found the association of independent music aim okay um and it was a successful uh company that was you know working essentially in the classical market and the mor market and the reason i took the job was for the money and before that i'd been working in acid house uh, in North London, working for a company called Pacific Records, which was right. a sort of fairly dodgy uh, company that was a distribution company, but also had some licensing with Early Acid House. Um, I mean, at the risk of, you know, at the risk of libeling, libeling it, I think it was a front for the mob because <laughs> its roots were in New Jersey. And we would have these Italian gentlemen come over occasionally and walk around the office. And I think there was a money laundering aspect to it. It was I was very young, just out of college, working in sales there. Um, and I got approached by a headhunter who said, would you like to? you know, considered becoming an export manager for, for this company. And he told me what the money was. And I said, yeah, sure. You know, so I did that for a while, but obviously it wasn't my, it wasn't really my, my musical love at all. I was just doing it as a job. Sure. And then I was in Medem one year, which was a conference that takes place in Cannes, used to take place in Cannes in January, music industry conference with Conifer. And I met Case Vessels. Mm. And I had a good conversation with Case and he encouraged me to apply for a job that was going uh, at, at Roadrunner um, to run or to try and develop an alternative music or alternative rock arm to the company that wasn't rock, uh, metal based or hard rock based. It was coming out of that alternative rock 
world yeah. that started to grow through in Seattle and started to grow out of, you know, that grunge scene and whatever. He wanted to kind of get, and, and also the kind of UK indie scene. And he wanted mm. me to help develop that. They had a label in print called Emergo, which is E-M-E-R-G-O. And they wanted me to run that. And so I was kind of separate from king diamond and sepultura and death and all those bands but we were all in the same open plan office but i was working or trying to work with bands like teenage fan club and mm. you know and you know american licensing deals with with uh, companies like tang and we were working with mission and burma and Slapshot and you know these these american sort of rock bands and you know it was all very interesting but i wasn't really getting anywhere because i was the only person in the company doing it everybody yeah. else was essentially a metalhead um and i was sort of going yeah well, we should think about signing these slightly fey uk indie bands and they were like ah, you know we're, we're gonna go off and and, and watch day aside yeah. <laughs> you know which was all good fun you know and i'd be like i'm gonna go and see pulp and they're like we're gonna go and see sacred reich yeah, and it yeah. was just like you know there was a big disconnect between what I was doing and what they were doing. But, you know, we, we carried on. We signed some bands. I had a couple of allies in the American office um, and in the German office. And so I signed a couple of bands like Heads Up and uh, the Venus Beats and, and various other people. And, and they, they weren't particularly successful. One of the reasons being is that the company really didn't know what to do with these bands. And also Case wasn't really sure about what level of investment he wanted to make. I mean, the thing about Case was that he was very much from a school of, you don't really pay the bands anything. They should be, you know, they should feel privileged to have a record deal. And we'll give them enough money to make their record, but we won't really give them an advance. And, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll try and we'll try and do as little marketing as possible. And, you know, it was all about, you know, let, let, let's, let's try and sign these bands very early, make them big and, and make them profitable. And that was very much his modus operandi. They have a pretend to be anything else um, and, and that's what he wanted to do but it was very difficult at a time when the UK music industry was starting to get interested in this sector to have no money and no opportunity to market the artists and 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 no infrastructure around it that I could point to and say mm -hmm. you should come and sign to me when there were you know lots of different labels like Creation who I ended up were going to work for um, Fire Records uh, Domino all these other labels were you know were much cooler much more resourced you mm -hmm. know much more connected so I, I was a bit of a sort of fish out of water really um, at the same time you could, it's difficult to go to someone like eat your pulps and, and things like that and say oh come join me yeah all right well what you, what's your resource model well we're really just pushing sepultura at the minute yeah yeah we might be able to get you a, a support slot with you know with, with a death metal band in the boston arms you know it's wasn't yeah. really happening i mean i have to say i kind of threw myself into the the rock side of things as well it wasn't really my area of interest but you know i became interested in it it was a very interesting you know the people you know the culture around it was very interesting the people involved in that mm. world were really interesting and i you know enjoyed hanging out with sepultura and enjoyed yeah. hanging out with with those guys um, you know, I spent a lot of time, threw myself into it, got got to know the market pretty well. Um, but I was always felt like I was standing to one side of it, really. And Case was, you know, Case was kind and he was mm. nice, but he was in it to make a quick buck, really, out of a burgeoning scene. He wasn't really there because he felt any love or affiliation with the with with the scene. And and so I, I, I you know, after a couple of years there, I found myself getting fairly demotivated 
by the whole thing you know even though I, yeah. I enjoyed the people at the company it was a good company and you could tell that the company was going to go on and you know and and, and find that one artist you know mm. you know in, in their case Nickelback or Slipknot or whatever it was that were going to take them to a to another level because yeah, yeah. they kind of own that space right? it's interesting you say that about case because um and his uh, the way you perceive the investment that you need to put into the bands because I call it the Blumhouse model because these days there's Blumhouse, which is the horror film um, production company, and and they have minimum investment across a number of different projects, and all they need is one to break, and it looks like that's what Case was doing it, high volume, low investment. As soon as Abigail by King Diamond comes out, it's all paid for itself, so there's no real worry. Yeah, um, and that's the school he came from because I guess he was he was doing this for a long, long time. Uh, and he'd come from a major label background. He'd come from Polydor. You know, he'd he'd mm-hmm. he'd run Polydor in the Netherlands, and and he knew that that it was very much a throw stuff at the wall and see if any of it sticks. You know, they work on that that as you say that that high volume, low success percentage level, but it's uh, you know high risk, high reward. Um, and yep. but you know, to be fair, that is the music industry. That's always totally. been the music industry. You know, the 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 reason that the music industry struggles to to attract or the record industry, not the publishing industry. Publishing industry is very a very stable annuity normally but the but the record industry struggles to attract real investment for new artists because there's no matrix to hedge risk you know Mm -hmm. it's it's all risk and so you have to admire entrepreneurs like case for going into the market building these companies doesn't make it any easier when you're a young idealistic a&r man trying to go out there and compete with labels that if they can't offer the money can offer the creative control can offer the you know the deep engagement with the scene and the passion for the scene which artists find you know i think artists like me you know i think mm-hmm. i was you know popular amongst the artist community but they were like but yeah but you know lawrence bell at domino wants to sign us and you know he's got sebado and he's got mission of burma and you know and they're really cool and there's a whole culture there and you don't have that you're just a sort mm-hmm. of a satellite evolving or sort of you know or, or orbiting around a heavy metal company so didn't, mm. didn't didn't really work it didn't end well for me there to be honest so. you mentioned emergo which i find intriguing because when the new york office opened it opened with road racer obviously being the yeah. legal representation um in america it opened with hawker or there was an imprint called hawker about a year later which dealt with hardcore yeah. and then emergo happened and I can never track down who was running Emergo. So it started with Steve Ricardo in there. And yeah. then I thought, apparently it was Regina Poscow. That's a sec- the second person after Steve leaves. And now you're saying, so did you do run Emergo just in the UK? Yeah. Uh, or, yeah. So I mean, well, Regina? I mean, Emergo was, a, was, was this kind of nebulous you know imprint it didn't really it didn't have you know where's roadrunner you could say you had roadrunner in cologne roadrunner in london roadrunner in amsterdam you know roadrunner in new york i mean it had a very had roots it had real foundations whereas emergo was an idea it was a philosophy yeah, yeah. it was a it was a punt it wasn't something it was an imprint it didn't have any real individual profit center or didn't have a it didn't have a real infrastructure around it like the like the other company did you know Mm. so you know like a lot of these companies you know uh you know emi is the is the overall company and within that sits a bunch of imprints like parlophone or used to i should say before they sold to warners but you know parlophone or chrysalis or whatever it was would sit within it that was what the situation was it was an imprint within the larger company so not really taken seriously so yeah 
and of course, you know, all the people that came to work for Roadrunner were metalheads. That that's that that was the culture that had, that had built. So why would they care about a you know fay indie pop band from Sheffield? They don't. Why would they care? You know, I, I don't blame them for it. It just wasn't a good fit. I think it was a. You know, I'm I'm amazed I was there for as long as I was before I got fired. To be honest, it's interesting because you you've kind of segued exactly into my question, which was because um, '91 is the interesting year for Roadrunner. They acquire Third Mind and they take some steps to potentially move away from metal and diversify quite a lot um but this is before nevermind came out i think like if you look at the dates of the third mind acquisition and i think a guy called dave howell had an imprint called lafayette which was a damn yeah, I, I brought dave howell in as well yep yep yeah, so um, dave howell, i mean so lafayette was the dance sorry just on the, on that lafayette was uh, was named after lafayette street which is where roadrunner was based yep. um and again case had this idea that he wanted to you know, sort of participate in the burgeoning dance scene, house scene, as it was there in the UK. It's not an area I knew a lot about. I didn't really know a lot about, you know, about um, industrial stuff that Gary was doing. But me and Gary went to school together. I don't know if you mentioned that, but we we went to school together. So that, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Why, that's why I brought him in. Um, and then, you know, Dave, I just advertised um you know for somebody to come in and do it and we got this mad succession of people we yeah. got mark sutherland applied for the job who was you know ended up being the editor of music week and melody maker uh, mm. jefferson hack who ended up being the proprietor of dazed and confused i mean all these mad people applied for the job that didn't get and, and dave howe got it um and i think he was a little bit like me which was it's a great idea but nobody really wants this Nobody mm. wants a dance label, you know. It's it's a it's a it's a abstract concept, and we would yeah, sit yeah. there, go down the pub, and sort of you know go. I don't know what we're supposed to be doing here. We've got no money, we've got no resource, and yet we've got these huge targets to reach. It's it's insane, really. Yeah, yeah. What what? How did this set targets then? Was well, there, was that what was the model? Have have you know have success or have some level of success to justify right. your wages. You know, the thing is, I went on then to work for, you know, for record companies, you know, like Creation Records. I spent 10 years at Creation Records. You know, we, yeah, we yeah. sold 50 million Oasis albums. You know, I mean, I went on to see how real record companies were run, you know, and how real marketing budgets were, you know, were were apportioned and, and how A&R really worked. And I thought, what on earth was I doing for two years? This is insane. You know, and, you know, I've had a 30-year career in the music industry. And I look back at my time at Roadrunner and think, I don't even know what I was doing for two years. It was kind of <laughs> silly. Do you know what I mean? I, I went, you know, I went to America a few times, you know, I went out with bands, I, you know, I had a great time. And, mm. you know, I have to say, even, even to this day, you know, even though he fired me, I mean, I've got nothing but respect for Case. He was always, you know, he's a really, have you, have you, ever, have you ever, did you ever have any contact with him or interaction? Uh, yeah, apparently he's, uh, is incredibly incredibly private and i kind of get why because otherwise people will just send him demos but no i've it's to the point where i'm not even going to try and reach out yeah i mean i haven't spoken to him god it must be for 30 years and you know he's really enigmatic and really charismatic yeah and slightly frightening and you know and all, all of those things um and i you know i look at him as an early mentor but i'm not sure quite what he mentored me in you know apart from you know, apart from, you know, you, you can create a really successful company by spending no money, really. <laughs> if you will, I think I tell you what, I tell you what he he taught me, which was if you surround yourself with experts, if you if you basically say, I'm just a middle aged guy from Holland, but if I get a Monty Connor or if I get a Mark Palmer and I 
and R people who really understand this business and really get it. They will bring me artists that that I can then build a company around. And I only need one or two. I only need uh, a Sepultura and a Deicide, you know, and or a King Diamond, and, and I'm away. And then I can start to acquire stuff. And, you know, if I look after these gears, if I look after Monty, if I look after, you know, Monty's the guy. He's the kind of key guy that bought these enormous sort of independent rock acts through. Um, if I get those guys, I can build a whole company around that, which he did, you know, because his, his skill was in, you know, in in international finance really and it wasn't in the, A&R. and he saw the disco bubble burst yeah so he's he saw the saturation happen and he knew what he where the, the prioritization needed to go in the late 70s and early 80s um do you know if he was the if he was actually the A&R guy for black sabbath that i don't know i just i heard that somewhere because i guess there's such I, doubt a, it. I doubt it i mean i think he you know he worked with a lot of acts when he bearing in mind he was dutch based yeah. You know, he was based in Holland. I mean, he may have been the Dutch representative for, for Black Sabbath. He might have been their guy in Holland. Mm. I doubt he had any day-to-day interaction with the creative of the band. Sure, sure. It's because it's before 1980, you hear that he works at Polygram. Um, and then there's two stories about his A&R days with Dutch, like, psychedelic rock bands. Yeah. And that's it. There's nothing else anywhere. Well, he worked, I know he worked quite heavily with Blue Cheer. I think that Blue Cheer was was something that you know that he 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 worked. With. I mean, you know, who knows? It's like, yeah, yeah. He, he, as you say, he's very enigmatic. You know, he yeah. kept himself to himself. I mean, we never really fell out, but you know, you wouldn't fall out with him because there was no way in to fall out with him. There was no way you could have a conversation with him that ever led to any conflict because he wouldn't let you in. Do you know what I mean? He was. Mm. Very interesting guy. I'd like to meet him now. Now that I'm older and wiser and could probably talk to him as a peer, I'd like yeah. to talk to him now. I mean, I was a very young kid then. I was in my early 20s, yeah. you know, with, you know, with no money and, and no experience. And, and, and you can't have that kind of conversation. I probably could now. You know, I mean, I'd like, mm. to, I'd like to be able to talk to him now because I think he's a really interesting guy. Yeah, yeah. I think he's still around as well from what yeah. I can gather, but... He must be old. He was old then, or he felt old then. <laughs> yeah, I think he's uh, late seventies, early eighties yeah, now. He must be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when we're at this point where he's, he's diversifying and he's acquiring different properties, as I said, it, it was before, say, Metallica self-titled. It was before Nevermind. So there was nothing to prompt him to diversify other than the need to be proactive. Was it a strategy, or was he, you know, was he just trying to be less risk-averse? It was. Was there a plan, or was he just treading water? I don't think it was a plan as such. I think it was a desire. I think he'd. I think he'd seen what you can do if you, if you intervene. Probably the wrong word. If you engage with a scene or a culture at the right time, you can end yeah. up owning that. You know, and he did that with rock. You know, he ended up in independent rock. There was him. There was Nuclear Blast. There was you know, a couple of other labels around that time. But he knew that there was a massive untapped market that he could own. And and he didn't have to be an expert in it. He just needed to employ experts, and they would bring that in there, and he could create a catalogue of rights 
that would be valuable, you know. And and I think he felt the same way about dance music, and I think he felt the same way about rap music. He had some forays into rap a bit later on. He certainly felt the same way about alternative rock, which you know, which makes sense. Alternative rock, hard rock. There's a there's a you know there's a pathway through that through those genres. You can you can see that. So I can understand why he would do that. I probably wasn't the right person to do it. I mean, I blagged my way into the job. I certainly wasn't an expert. Um, I don't think with me he surrounded himself with an expert. You know so. I just think that Here's again. Something I found on WikiHow. Sorry, that's my. To think more effectively. Spotify going on. Alexa, your m- stop. <laughs> <laughs> Must have said something that kind of sparked her off. Um, uh, so I, I think that he, as I said earlier, I think it was a a, a, a philosophy, a vision to create a more rounded company. Mm. Um, but as I say, I don't think he did it with the same aplomb that he did it with the, the rock thing. He didn't repeat the success that he'd had because he didn't know the people in the world to do that because he wouldn't have hired me if that was the case. Yeah. You know, I subsequently went on and had brilliant success at Creation Records over 10 years. You know, sure. so, you know, without blowing my own trumpet, I was the wrong, I was the right guy at the wrong time. Yeah. So, do you know what I mean? It's like, do, do you see what I mean? Sometimes it doesn't work. David Howe went on to have, you know, a fair amount of success as well in, in, in the dance music. But but it's like, you know, we were the wrong guys, at the, you know, we're the wrong, the, the right guys at the wrong time, I think. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Especially with the model of, of having no actual resources. It's not like you could innovate off your own back. I mean, I knew all these bands and I knew all the A&R guys. I mean, you know, I could have probably signed Teenage Fan Club. If you'd have given me the 50 grand, you know, that Creation Records ended up, offering teenage fan club you know if you'd have given me that level of advance i probably could have built something with it but i don't think he quite trusted the idea enough to commit the resource to it he his idea was see what you can do but the other thing about him was he was like and i want the publishing and i want these other rights and i want you know i want to put that into you know into you know uh, i think it was called the all blacks publishing was his company you know i wanted i yeah. want all i want all those rights as well and you're like i can't do this i mean not only will will no manager allow me to just acquire all the rights for nothing no lawyer's going to let me do that either so even if the manager's stupid enough to go and go yeah great as soon as he gets to the lawyer he's going to turn or she's going to turn around and go you can't do this you can't you can't take my, my my clients' publishing rights, their record rights, have a share of their merchandising, and not pay them advance and mm. not commit any marketing money. Why would we do that? Yeah. You know. So it was always a well, I was always on a loser from from day one. Really, it taught me a lot. You know. So yeah, it's a lot of the bands I've spoken to, and I ask like, what's your initial um, uh, meeting with Rodri? It was very much we were just kids and we made a mistake. <laughs> Yeah, it's the it's unfortunately the story of the music industry. I don't think it can be laid squarely at Roadrunners' doors. I think you know that, that these days everybody's everybody's accepting that there's there's going to be an ancillary rights deal. Everybody's accepting that the, the record company are going to try and take you know a land grab of of rights. I mean that's something that's that's fairly normal now. But it's also mm-hmm. accepted that the record company will pay for those rights in some way, and they will add value to those rights in some way. Um, the idea of ancillary rights then was anathema. It was like, you're a record, record rights. Why would we give you the publishing rights? You know, yeah. no other record companies were asking for those. So how are you expected to ever sign any bands when they just laugh at you and go, but the other record company that are offering us actual money don't want those rights? Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a rabbit hole, but it's like to give you an idea of the the way we were hamstrung, you know, in that situation, you know. That's my background as well. There's a lot of young rock bands out there who love, who saw the success that they'd had with some of these other bands who wanted that success, who wanted access to that audience, who were prepared to do that. 
you know, but there, there was a template there that the that Roadrunner could point at and go, see, Sepultura, we took them from being an obscure Brazilian band to a global artist. You know, look at Sacred Right, look at, you know, look at these other bands that we work with. You know, you're going to mm. be in a stable with bands that have got really successful, sustainable careers, you know, and, and you know, and, and still a terrible deal. But, you know, if you're a young artist thinking, well, I want to be like those bands. I want to be on the front cover of Kerrang. I want to be in Metal Hammer, you know, yeah. could, could do that in the alternative rock thing because there was no template for it. So, yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's actually my background. My education is all in like the commercial IP law stuff. Right. That's, why, that's that's why I love this stuff because you, know, you can, I guess, like the model documentary style is usually banned and the label is the footnote, usually throwing a hammer, um, a spanner in the works. But doing it from this is the story of the label and the bands of the footnote has been yeah. really, really telling and really fun. But onto that that point. But, but um, just just to give you a point, just to, just if it's of interest, you know, I then went from and we'll talk about you know how I sort of segued from Roadrunner into Creation. I went to Creation where most of those, most of their deals were fifty fifty. They were just straight 50-50 deals. You know, old school, we'll take the costs off and anything that's left over, we'll, we'll split 50-50. And that blew my mind. It was like, oh, so you're actually going to give the artist some money. It's like insane. You <laughs> madman. You know, because I'd come from this, you know, because in the in, in the previous companies I'd worked for, they were mainly licensing deals. So, you know, the Acid House stuff that I did was licensed from Detroit or licensed from, from yeah. America. So, you know, that there was no artist involvement. It was just like licenses. Distribution. Yeah, it was distribution deals, and, and Conifer was the same. It, they were licensed deals. These were artist development deals. But how can you develop an artist when you don't give them any money to live on? So, you know, whereas – I anyway, so looking back on it now, it was awful. It was awful when you think about it. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, right, so I've after speaking to bands and, and things like that, I've got a model Roadrunner deal. So, And we've talked about some of these things already, but I'm going to – I'm just going to do you a, a checklist of things, and you can tell me if I'm wrong because I think it develops into the 90s – and it moves a little bit left and right. So a typical al- a typical record deal with a band would be six or seven albums. Yeah. An option after the second or the third, typically the second. Yeah. I would say all the IP effectively held. Well, I, I think the option would be after the first. I don't think they'd ever do a two album firm deal. Oh really? No. I mean, why would you do a firm deal when you when you don't have to? You know, you don't want to have to commit to paying that advance. You know, the option would be on the record company side all after album one. So mm-hmm. in other words, if it doesn't perform, we can drop you. You know, yeah, yeah. and any kind of two album firm deals in the artist's favour, so that would never have happened. Mm. I'm sure there was some, especially back in the, especially with some of Monty's bands in the earlier days. Right. Well, unless that was, you know, unless, and you know, I, I certainly didn't see any of those. But I mean, it's possible. It just doesn't sound like case that he would, yeah, you know, yeah. that, that he would a firm album deal, unless he was desperately trying to win the deal. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, all IP retained by Roadrunner. Oh no, yeah. No written guaranteed tour support. They'd do it most of the time, but they wouldn't guarantee it in case they got drafted into a, a shitty tour. No. Fully recuperable as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, typically, five months, I guess, in the UK, money that would be, what, 3K at the time? If for, a de- for a debut album. Yeah, and that would include recording costs. Yeah, yeah. So no no personal advance. They were basically make the record yeah. on the yeah. three thousand pounds. I mean, I don't know about you. I mean, even in, in even in the late eighties, it's it's a big ask to make a, an album for three thousand quid. Yeah, I mean, you can you can get some mileage in a studio, but not for long, unless you've unless you've been playing the same songs for five years and you got them down to a T. You're not gonna you're not gonna get much out of it. 
Well, you're not. Mixing. No, the studios I was using, I was using like Bark Studios in, in you know, Walthamstow or, you know, studios up in Stockport in Manchester because they were cheap. You'd never get a decent producer for that. You know, I mean, the yeah. producer would cost you three grand, you mm. know, to start with. So if all your, if all your uh, records were being made at that level of budget, you're essentially using the studio engineer to produce the record. So yeah. you end up putting a load of low quality records out. That, that's, yeah. that's what happens, you know. Any details I'm missing from that sort of model deal? Well, no, I think you're quite right. You know, very long deals, in perpetuity deals. You know, the rights the rights never revert. Um, you know, rights that will also include publishing, uh, low advances, no personal advances, um, and no marketing commitments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and you know, for the world, the universe. And planets at yet as yet undiscovered, you know. I yeah. mean that that type of deal, really. So you know, it's it really shockingly poor deals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and still, still, still doing those into the night is okay. Yeah, that's cool with me. Um, so tell me about kind of like the working week of Roadrunner. Gary was, uh, I watched the nostalgic, but he tell me a lot of stories about the Monday A and R meetings where you get everyone into a room and you'd reel off the figures from the previous week. And obviously, everyone would be looking at each other because Gary might have pulled something in which hasn't sold a lot. Um, you'd have scored high or something like that, and there was a, there was a certain anxiety associated with them. Well, it probably would have been me to be honest. It was probably Mark that that, that would be scoring high with stuff. I mean, Mark Mark would have all the you know the retail figures. I mean, in those days, you'd get from your distributor, you'd get a fax with you know all of the daily uh, and weekly figures on it. So that would that would probably be there, and you know we'd be we'd be talking about that stuff. Mm. But honestly, we were the you know, Gary was doing okay because Gary had a fan base out in in Belgium because he'd been with Piaz, played against him for a long time before that, and he'd had you know he'd had success in America and Canada. I mean, I'm skinny puppy were Canadian, so you know he had some you know some success in other territories. I mean, I, I was always a massive failure with what I was doing. You know, as was David. Nobody really knew what we were doing, mm. um, and you know the metal stuff would would mainly be coming. They'd mainly be American. Uh, yeah. signings from Monty that we would be exploiting in the UK. You know, there'd yeah. be there'd be one or two thrash metal bands that, you know, that had been signed to the UK company, but they weren't doing, you know, any any real business. I mean it was mainly can we exploit the signings from America and the European territories, you know, in in mm. combination with our other European offices, which were in at that time Cologne and Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah. I was actually going to ask that. Like, what was the relationship between the UK office and the the other Alcolum satellite? Knowing they're not really satellite offices, were they all independent of each other in terms of um, you have a ring fenced budget and but with an overall agenda? Or did did you take certain instruction from Amsterdam and vice versa? I know you were saying you were t- you were exploiting some of the um, US signings where you could. But well, Amsterdam, the- Amsterdam was essentially the European head office because that's where Case was based. Mm-hmm. And it was essentially a Dutch company, you yeah. know, so we would go over to Amsterdam on a bi- bi-weekly basis, possibly monthly basis, you know, one of those 5 a.m. flights that would get you into Amsterdam at nine, you know, do a day's meetings and then fly back exhausted. You know, we would do that on a fairly regular basis. So I got to know Amsterdam or bits of Amsterdam very well. Mm-hmm. Um, we would occasionally go to Cologne, which was run by a guy called Frank Strubler, who you should definitely talk to. He's now a very successful artist manager now, you know, looked after Pink, looked after, you know. All right. So Frank Strubler, you'll probably be able to find him on LinkedIn, which is, cool. and he spent a long time at, at uh, Sony. He was at Sony for a long time. S-T-R-O-E-B-L-E, Strubler. Strubler. 
Strobler, really nice guy. He'll definitely talk to you. Mark, Mark will definitely talk to you, you know, yeah. as I would. You know, I mean, why wouldn't you? I can give you half an hour, half an hour, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, that everybody will talk to you. Um, and I think, you know, definitely talk to Frank because he he was uh, he was having huge success in Germany. It was a very successful office uh, yeah. because that was a market that was very receptive to that music. Um, yeah. You know, the Dutch guys were. You know they were very, uh, very good. I mean, we would talk all the time, but of course, but bear in mind this is this is way, way before email, way, way yeah, before yeah. phones. It was all telephone conversations and faxes. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no, no no such thing as even a conference call. You know, you would just talk to people on the telephone. So we had these relationships, and you know, there were, I think, there was a sense that everybody had their internal budgets because I remember having, you know, having to beg Frank to arrange touring for my bands in Germany. Oh, right. You know, and he would be like, yeah, it's coming out of my budget and I don't think they'll sell anything. And I'd be like, do me a favour. And then we'd go over there and we'd hire a van and, you know, go over there and he'd, you know, find some terrible DOS house for us to sleep and, you know, all this kind of stuff. You know, it was, it was all great fun when you're young, free and single. But, um, yes, I mean, there was no... I think each office ran as an individual office. You know, Mark ran the UK office, Frank ran the German office, and, you know, Case essentially ran the, the Dutch office with, with a team of, you know, team of people. And I think financially, everything was run out of Holland. So right. they did all the systems, if you like, all the operations were run out of Holland. So. Right. So there was, yeah, yeah. So there was no independent agenda. It was kind of, well, you all had your own, sort of treat it as independent businesses, but obviously with the parent office, kind of calling the shots on so, the so holland, would, holland would holland would call the shots yeah oh, netherlands would call the shots uh america would would be the creative powerhouse they would mm-hmm. be signing developing artists and london and germany were essentially marketing and uh a district uh, outposts in cool. key territories a, you know because so at that time, course, you know, england and germany were probably it was it probably went america germany england rest of the world in terms of importance of territories you know in yeah. terms of sales so uh you know Amer- america definitely drove it creatively and and holland drove it operationally if that makes sense yeah yeah definitely it's it, a marketing outpost makes a lot of sense to me yeah um before we start bringing it to a close any um have you got any major successes or major failures uh, that you want to talk about from your time at roadrunner i mean they're all they're all pretty major failures to be honest <laughs> yeah I did for all the reasons that I said, you know, not, I don't, I don't, I mean, not, not because I was particularly bad at my job, just that I wasn't given a very clear brief. I wasn't given the resources to fulfill the very poor brief that I was given. And, you know, there wasn't a level of, you know, understandably, there wasn't a level of support at the company for what I was trying to do. Mm. So, you know, it was always going to end in tears and it did, you know, I got ended up getting fired. You know, you know about the offices burning down, right? So when Gary was telling me about this, he said um, that you left the day after, um, but he also said that you may or may not want to talk about it. And it was going to be my last question with obviously deferring no, to yourself. No, I'll talk about it because it's a good story. So, so, the, um, <laughs> so, so we had these offices in the Harrow Road and uh, you're not based in London by the sounds of your accent. <laughs> no, um, up in New Yorkshire. Okay, so, so Ikea or the, the, the Ikea in Brent Cross Mm-hmm. Uh, was fairly near to the Harrow Road, reasonably near. So I remember one bank holiday Monday going to Ikea with my fairly new wife to buy some stuff for the house. And I I bought a couple of things for the office. I think I bought a pot plant or something. Mm-hmm. So, and I said, look, it's quite near the office. It was a Sunday, I think. Why don't we go to the office 
and I'll drop this off, you know. So we drove down to Harrow and we got there and the office wasn't there. I mean, it literally wasn't there. There was a gap where the office was and it had burnt down. And the oh, story, shit. I think, was that the, the, the business on the bottom floor was an Afro-Caribbean hairdresser's. Okay. It had either combusted or somebody had burnt it down. But it had also taken out all of the other offices, including ours. So, you know, I remember standing there with this weird sensation of going, is this actually where the office is? You know, it's like, <laughs> had your car stolen. But I remember yeah. my car stolen and I'm and going back to where I parked it and it not being there and having this, did I actually park it here? Mm. You know, and sort of, you know, questioning myself and, question, and, and, and it was like, shit. So I think I was the first person to see it. So I remember ringing up and going, I think the office is burned down. And, uh, and so we moved offices fairly nearby, a couple of hundred yards down the road into the basement of a building that Case knew. Um, and we were there for a little while. And I think Case, Case had said to me uh, previously, I need to see some results. I need to see some justification for what was going there. Right. Um, and, you know, I was under a lot of stress to deliver. knew I probably couldn't. And then I think very shortly after we moved in, he came to see him and he said, I'm really sorry, but I'm going to let you go. You know, I'm going to terminate our relationship, which wasn't great timing for me because my wife was eight months pregnant with our first child and interest rates, mortgage interest rates at that point were 15 percent. Yeah. And so it was a really awful moment, even though I knew it was coming. It was like, damn, you know. Uh, so I said to him, you need to help me out. And he said, what do you want? I said, you need to give me you need to give me five grand severance. And to 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 be to his you know to his credit he went okay we'll get that sorted out you know we'll we'll sort that out I'll give you five grand then I'll pay you um, and that'll get you through the next few months until you find another job um, and I was like okay well then I'll you know so I remember having to go home to my wife who was like you know fully pregnant yeah. going sorry I've lost my job and we might lose our house you know and it was terrible you know and it was at a time when people really weren't hiring mm-hmm. and you know, I hadn't really distinguished myself at Roadrunner so I didn't have a lot of um, you know, I didn't have a lot on my CV to kind of impress people with. And, um, I remember, you know, being desperate and like knocking on people's doors and washing their cars. And, you know, and I had a, my brother-in-law was a uh, work for a landscape gardening company. I was mowing people's lawns mm-hmm. and I had a friend of mine, a guy called Mike Smith, who's now, who went on to run Columbia records and went and ran, you know, uh, Virgin EMI until recently ran Warner Chapel and is now sort of global president of downtown music publishing. So I went on to have a stellar career, but at the time he was an A&R guy at EMI mm-hmm. and I knew him. And he said, Alan McGee at Creation Records is looking for a press officer. And I went, press officer, I've been running this like label essentially. So I thought it was slightly beneath me. Yeah. yeah. So I, 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 you know, having spent a couple of months in desperation thinking I just need any job, basically, I went to see Alan McGee and he gave me a job as a press officer. Um, and, and that's how I started at Creation Records. And that, to be fair, is where my career took off. And I ended up having a very successful 10 years and became director of communications at Creation and set up Velocity and, you know, I'm celebrating the 20th anniversary of a, you know, successful agency, which is what I'm doing now. So, so it, you know, it wasn't, it, it, it was a disaster, but it ended up being one door closes, another one opens, you know, Any so. Feelings? I, no. 
No, because I think when you when you're older, when you look back, of course, at the time, mm. I was bitter and twisted. But when I look back on it, I'm like, why, why, why would I have even hired me in the first place? And why would I have let this run on for two years? And you know, you know, of course, of course, you know, you you would have sat down and and done this. I mean, I would have done this if I ran the company at the mm. time. I you just when you're younger, you take everything personally. Yeah, you know, I went on and I, I I lectured for ten years at the University of Hertfordshire on their music industry management course. You know, I've stopped doing that reasonably recently. Um, but you know, in my lectures, I would always say to them, just remember, if you work in the music industry, you will get fired. You will get fired at some point, mm-hmm. and how you deal with that and how you cope with that will go a long way to, you know, to you know, to 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 how long a career you have in the music industry. But it's a brutal, it's a brutal industry. It can be a brutal industry, and and it's a very competitive industry. And I just ended up in a place that wasn't for me i was the right guy at the wrong time mm. <laughs> so i'm happy to talk about it. it's interesting that gary thinks i wouldn't talk about it i haven't seen gary for a long time actually um it's i mean i mean from his perspective it probably looked really brutal and it and it probably was you know but i just you know i think i think now you look back and go yeah of course why wouldn't you fight me because <laughs> <laughs> i think his his uh, leaving of roadrunner was under similar terms as well, it and it's interesting because um, it's interesting you say about Case when you say that I need a severance given the circumstances, um, because Gary had Case um, sign up as the guarantor to a house, yeah, that, that he that he then moved into after after leaving Roadrunner. So it it seems like Case is a as as well as being sort of a brutal businessman from the older kind of music industry days is also a fairly compassionate, looks after his own kind of guy. Yeah, I, look, I. I, I... You know, when I look back on it now, I, you know, when I when I knew I was going to talk to you, I was like, "What do I remember from those times?" It's you know, a long time ago. I mean, how old are you? I'm 31. Yeah, so it was literally <clears throat> as old as you are now. Your whole life experience ago. You know, it yeah. was like, you know, it's a long time ago, and you know, so much to use a cliche, water has gone under the bridge. You know, so much has changed in my life. You know, I'd like to think I'm 55 now. You know, I've had a successful career and you know i've done well financially and i think i've got a reasonable reputation within the music industry you know as you can tell by my you know my gold discs you know it's <laughs> it's um you know uh, you know it, it's 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 not something you can be bitter about when you look on it and go that was part of the experience of mm. of my career you know i have been treated really badly in my career you know, and I do hold grudges against people that have done that, you know, people that have behaved really badly. Uh, and, and I can honestly say I don't think Case behaved really badly. I think mm. he, you know, he, yeah, I, I don't think that, you know, he, he didn't know that my wife was eight months pregnant. He didn't know that, you know, that, that I was struggling to pay my mortgage. It's, the, mm. it's not his concern. It's not, not, it's not his, you know, it's a business decision. And you sort of look back and, you know, and, and he did the right thing. Gave me the yeah. money to get me through those three months to find another job to go on and do it. So, so you know, not bitter at all. Uh, Gary, you know, Gary's a bit of an oddball, as you probably know anyway. You know, I mean, he's got, he's got, he's, you know, he plow, he, he, he goes in his own lane. You know, he's, um, you know, he was the kid in the, when we were at school, he was the, the, the kind of the weird kid in the common room listening to Joy Division. You know, I mean, <laughs> that, we were all out playing football. You know, he had the long Matrix coat on, you know, just, you know, listening to, you know, gothic music, you know, but yeah. he was that kid. I mean, I love Gary, but, you know, I'm for a long time i should i should reconnect with him but um you know he's uh, i can imagine him and case probably didn't you know didn't connect particularly well <laughs> but um but there you go but you know that i hope is. to some of those other guys because i'm sure they'll be able to give you much more insight into the you know into the, the real inner workings of the company that i did i've got i've made the notes 
I'm gonna I'm gonna chase him down. I'm gonna find him. I've, I have two random questions now. Sure. Have you ever seen a ghost? I know how it's funny gone, you but... should say that. Actually, it's funny you should say that. I'm going to go down a slight rabbit hole here, right? Well, I've, got, I've got this house in uh, Norfolk. I'm lucky. I've got a second home. I bought an old school in right. uh, in a village in North Norfolk about 20 years ago, and it's an old. It was built in 1860, and it's you know it, it, it's it's a fabulous building. Spent years doing it up, and I've just sold it. I sold it this weekend because I bought another place. But in there, and I don't believe in ghosts. In, rationally, I'm an atheist, and I don't believe in the supernatural, and I have this very kind of, you know, dismissive view of people that believe in, you know, focus pocus. Sure. But whenever I spent any time in that house, I had some very strange experiences, some very weird. I never saw a ghost, but I had a sense of stuff do you know what i mean and whether it was an overactive imagination because it's in the middle of the countryside and it's very dark and it's you think that there's generations of kids have gone through this school and you know it had this kind of vibe about it in the daytime it was this amazing imposing you know old school and you know it was a you know cool place and we did it up really cool at night it was just a you know dark red brick building in the middle of the countryside you know so you know obviously i would be there mostly with my family or with friends and occasionally i would be there on my own and i never liked it so but i don't know whether that's that that answers your question but i certainly got a vibe off of that a place that i've never got off anywhere else you've broken i've i've had some weird experiences usually relating to someone's died and i've had a dream about them like the night before it's that kind of stuff okay premonitions that yeah 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 um but the thing is sometimes i find that i forget i've had some experiences and then they come back and i'm like holy shit that thing did happen yeah, so I don't know. Maybe I'm repressing them, but yeah, those are the, usually the the trend of things that happen. But you've broken a trend though, because everyone I've asked that question to either says no, or they have a ghost experience relating to a dog or a cat. A dog or a cat? I mean, I never really had any of those experiences. Mind you, I was out of my mind most of the time, so you know, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know if I was. But that you know, just that uh, you know, because I am like you know, don't be so stupid, ghosts. But you know, it is. I, I don't like scary movies. I don't, I've, I've always hated scary movies. My wife laughs at me because she loves them. So whenever mm. there's a you know a new scary movie on, she has to go with a mate because I won't go because it gives me yeah. it gives me nightmares. You know, so I don't like supernaturally movies, even though I tell people I don't believe in ghosts. But there you go. So, well, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll make a recommendation for your wife. It's the new Invisible Man. Oh, I've seen it actually. I've oh, seen it. Good, yeah. It? So I went to see it just before lockdown. We, we've got a local cinema. I live in St Albans. We've got a local cinema. Uh, who, who, that was the last film they showed before lockdown. It was really good. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah, really good. That's a Blumhouse. That's a small investment, high return film. Okay. Yeah. Um, last but not least, uh, I tend to do a bit of tape trading on uh, on on this podcast. Simply asking for bands that you think need a signal boost, and I do the same. It's a way of getting through the minutia of. Uh, you know how everyone has a band now. Every, everyone has a computer band. Everyone has. There's a lot of shit you got to wade through to get to the good stuff. So I think recommending music is a good way to try and cut through that and just get straight to the uh, the good bands. So is there any small bands which you think deserve recognition? Well, I don't know how small they are, but it's a band that I've only recently discovered, um, mm. and I think their their debut release came out last year. It's a band from Austin, Texas, cool. and they're called the Black Pumas. Have you come across them? No. 
That sounds cool. They're a very, very cool band. It's it's very kind of old school Southern soul. Ooh, it's okay. a black guy and a white guy. Uh, the vocals are very soulful. The mm-hmm. music is very. It's very, uh, very warm. It's very warm music. Um, Two six. No worries. There you go. Oh, that's cool. The Black Pumas. Yeah. And I think that they, you know, it's called the Black Pumas, an eponymous album. Um, and you know, I really, really recommend it. It's a, uh, it's a great band. The other band that I really like is is a band called Salt S A U L T, um, who you know who are very very politically charged, very message driven. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like bands like that. And I really love Idols, for example. I've been working with Idols recently from Bristol. I don't right. know if you know, but they yeah yeah I get yeah, to, I get recommended them a lot. Yeah. So Idols and Pontes DC are both on Partisan Records, who are clients of mine. And you know so. But Black Pumas, I, I always kind of point at people because it's like it, it feels like a record that everybody will find something in. You yeah. know, it's one of those records. It's not an extreme record. It's not. It's not a genre record. It just feels like a record that people will like. So yeah, you know, cool. So and it, and it really didn't do anything. It's been synced a little bit. One of their tracks, I think, got synced on on one of the you know the Android phone handsets. You hear right. it, yeah, but you might recognise it from an advert. Um, but apart from that, it really flew under the radar. It came out on an independent label, didn't really do anything, but it feels like a big record. It feels like it should have been a big record. So, yeah, enjoy that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, my recommendation to you is a band from Liverpool. It's a metal band, so I apologise. I know it's not right, right up your alley. It's called Fall On Hope. Fall On Hope. Fall On Hope. It's effectively right. a power metal band that's entirely based around the television show Sharp. <laughs> okay, what, the... the, the your Yorkshire compatriot. Yeah, kind of. I mean, uh, it's more it's more in the vein of uh, historical songs about the Napoleonic Wars, but you get a very nice. strong, sharp vibe. That's very good, niche. I love very. That. It's good fun, and I'll, I'll for a set for a, keep along with the theme. I'll um I'll share another one called Arno Core A A R N O C O R P S, which is just a punk hardcore band, which whose lyrics comprise entirely of Arnold Schwarzenegger quotes. Nice. Just just dumb fun. I do. Um, I do also recommend the new Bob Mould album. I don't know if you've heard that. Uh, heard, I've heard of him. Uh, so let me just see if I can find that. Uh, so yeah, this it's called. Um, it's called Blue Hearts. Blue Hearts. Um, it's. It, uh, do you know Bob Mould? Uh, I'm familiar with the name. I'm not familiar with the... Uh... So Bob Mull was in a band called Hooskadoo, uh, were, who were a, a, a sort of late 80s hardcore band from right. uh, from the Midwest in America. Okay. Very, very influential on Nirvana and on R.E.M. and on a bunch mm-hmm. of those bands around that time. Uh, Bob Mould then had a, a solo career, uh, put a couple of really brilliant albums out on Virgin in the early 90s and then signed to Creation where I was working and it was the first record that I worked on when I joined Creation was a, a, a band called Sugar uh, which he fronted uh, and the album was called Copper Blue and it went on to sell a couple of hundred thousand copies and it was again a really hugely influential album in the early 90s mm. and then he sort of disappeared and, and went off and did his thing, he came out as gay. Um, he immersed himself. He became a, uh, a script writer for WWF Wrestling. He sort of went off 
off and did all these mad stuff and he's yeah. he's released this kind of hardcore album you know it's it's really it's a it's an album of rage um cool. and it's, it's a lot about american politics and about where we are with america at the moment lyrically it's really strong but it'll it'll blow your head off because he's a you know a, he's he's somebody that does that existential rage better than anybody he's great yeah yeah i mean if there's one thing that's um, you could say about the trump administration is it's created some bloody great music yeah, and, angry music. and we needed that. We needed some protest music back, you know, because I think for years musicians got far too complacent. So it's great to hear, you know, great stuff. And Bob, you know, Bob's such a, he's cited as such an influence by some of the greatest guitar. He's a great guitarist and, and, and you know, sort of uh, punk pioneers. He's he's the guy. Yeah. He's the godfather, really. So I would, I would suggest checking out Blue Hearts, but also his back catalogue, if you don't know him, he's great. Yeah, I've just pulled up on, on Wiki. He's been very busy. Very busy. Yeah, yeah. And that's it, mate. Thank you very much well, for uh, giving me your time. Went a little bit longer than um, than we thought. If, if I do get in touch with people who you may have formerly known or something like that, I'll, I'll send them. I'll send them your way if you if you want to catch up or something like yeah, that. I'll let them know that you're, you're speaking. If you're, if you're approaching them, just say I said to cool, you know, because what is you know, I mean, for for what it's worth, you know. Good, totally good luck with the with the impending birth, and um, you know, and I hope it turns out well. Let me know how you get on with it. Yeah, man. I'll let you know.